thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. A survey was done about the top five things that people associate with death. Uh, Number one was a graveyard, two, a funeral, three, heaven and hell, four, the grim reaper, and five, loss and sadness. Death for most people is just a, a very sad, a very negative thing, something that they take no comfort in whatsoever. And here we're going to see in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's going to share with us why we as believers in Christ can have comfort in death. Now the Bible shares with us many reasons for why we as believers can have comfort in death, but Paul's main focus is our eternal hope. You see, the Bible promises believers in Jesus Christ some wonderful things when it comes to eternity. And Paul's going to focus on two of those wonderful things. The first being the wonderful body that we're going to get, our heavenly body that will be much better than this one. And also where we're going to get to spend eternity and with whom we get to spend eternity with. Last chapter, uh, Paul shared why we can have comfort in trials, and he challenged us to have an eternal perspective. The way that we can have comfort in trials is to really see the eternal weight of glory that those trials are doing in our lives. Uh, And in the same way, here in chapter 5, Paul's challenge with comfort in death is we need to have an eternal perspective if we're going to be able to have comfort in death. Because an eternal perspective drastically changes how you will view life and how you will view death. When Spain had extended her conquest to the ends of the then known world, her coins proudly pictured the pillars framing a scroll inscribed with the Latin words, ne plus ultra, which means no more beyond. They believed that they had conquered the whole world, that there was no more beyond what they had conquered. And then in 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue, found the new world, and all of a sudden the proud nation of Spain had to admit their ignorance, and they struck the nay from their coin, leaving just the words plus ultra, more beyond. There was not no more, there was actually more. They discovered more. And that change in perspective from no more beyond to to more beyond, it drastically impacted the Spaniards' lives. That change in perspective affected a revolution in world culture and global economy and geopolitics because they did realize there was more beyond. Now, the same perspective change from no more beyond to more beyond is also important when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to eternity. You know, many people have this delusion that there is no more beyond this life, that this life is it. And there are many people who live that way, even in Christians. You look at their life and you you see that they're living like this life is it, because that's all they're living for is this life. And so they, they live like there's nothing beyond this life. And for many people, they also believe that this life is it in the sense that, hey, there's no death. 
They kind of conclude things like, if you remember watching Looney Tunes growing up, that's all, folks. That, that, that's kind of the, their mindset to life is you die and it's done and there's nothing else. You know, when we die, that's not all. When we die, we are each going to go to eternity. For those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus, as we'll see here this morning, that eternity is going to be amazing. But for those who have rejected Jesus Christ, that eternity is going to be something that's horrible. So you see, in order to have comfort in death, you have to have an eternal perspective. You have to understand what's coming in eternity to make you actually see death in a positive way, not in a negative way. Well, Paul's going to be sharing these wonderful things in which we can take comfort in, but he's also going to share something else in this chapter, and that's the fact that not only should eternity give us comfort in death, but the reality of eternity should change the way in which we live in this life. Our recognition of where we're going brings us comfort, but the recognition of where those who don't know Jesus is going should impact the way in which we live this life in order to reach them. And so the second half of this chapter is going to be dealing with how we should live in light of eternity, in light of what's going to transpire for those who both know Jesus Christ and those who do not. And so let's start with the eternal perspective that Paul says we have to have in order to receive comfort in death. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1, says this, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul starts off by saying, For we know. You know, there is something so important for you and I as believers in Christ to know about our death. And so often there's a confusion or an ignorance to this knowledge that Paul wants every believer to be confident in, to have full knowledge of. And the reason for that is without this knowledge, you can't have the comfort that God wants you to have in death. He says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Notice Paul calls, he says, our earthly house, this tent. He's not speaking about a physical house like you and I live in here. He is speaking about our bodies. Our earthly house, this tent, is referring to to you and I, our, our physical bodies. And notice he refers to our physical bodies as a tent. And I believe he does this purposely because in that culture, those who lived in a physical house, you know, they were people who put down their roots. This is where they were going to be. But those who lived in tents, they were pilgrims. They were people who said, you know what? We're just passing through. We're not staying here for very long. We're just going to pitch a tent so that we can take it down and move it to the next place that we're going. And I think he's helping present something because in another portion of scripture, he tells us, hey, this world's not our home. We're just pilgrims. We're just passing through. Too often, we think this world is everything to us. This world is all that we want. This world is everything and that we kind of put our roots down and forget. Actually, eternity, heaven, is our true home. We're just passing through this life. And so Paul tells us that, hey, these tents, they're not permanent. These tents, this body that we live in, it's temporary, Paul goes on to say, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 
The building of God is referring to our heavenly body that we're going to receive when we go to be with the Lord in heaven. So Paul is giving this contrast of here you have on earth this tent, this temporary body, but when you go to heaven, you're going to have a building. You're going to have a permanent body, but it's not something that we make because we make buildings here. It's not going to be made with hands. The one who builds your body is going to be God himself, and he's going to give you a wonderful new heavenly body as you enter a eternity to be with him. Now, if you remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul gave us a couple contrasts between what this body here in this life is like versus how much better our body in heaven will be like. And I just want to remind you of some of those things. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44 says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Our bodies now, they are corruptible. They will perish. They can't last forever. But the bodies that we will receive in heaven are incorruptible. They will last for all eternity. Our bodies now are full of dishonor. We have sin, but our bodies in heaven are going to be full of glory. We won't have any more sin, as the Bible says, in heaven. There will be no more sin. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more tears. Our bodies now are full of weakness. And we we feel that. We recognize that. The older we get, the more pain it is to get out of bed, the more difficulties you have. But you know what? Our heavenly bodies are going to be full of power. All those things will not be existing in our heavenly bodies. Our bodies now are natural, but our heavenly bodies are going to be spiritual. So this is just a small list of the wonderful difference between what we have versus what we're going to receive. Charles Spurgeon, a great commentator and pastor, says this about our resurrected bodies. Salvation isn't just for the soul or spirit, but for the body also. Resurrection is how God saves our bodies. We have a glorious new body to come. The righteous are put into their graves all weary and worn, but as such they will not rise. They go there with a furrowed brow and a hallowed cheek with a wrinkled skin, but they shall wake up in beauty and glory. You know, the knowledge that we are going to receive this new wonderful body that you get to trade in this for something better, Paul says, that should bring comfort when it comes to death. Because the only way that transition happens is when you and I die. But not only should it be something that brings us comfort, Paul's going to go on to say in verses 2 through 4, we should actually desire this, want this change to happen. Notice what he says. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. When you and I come to the knowledge of how much greater our heavenly bodies are than our earthly bodies, 
Paul wants us to recognize we should earnestly desire that. I mean, that recognition, that reality of what's coming should be something that you long for and want when you see our body and compared to the, the great upgrade that is coming. But Paul says not only should you desire it, actually you should be burdened because we don't have it yet. There should be a burden within us of like, man, I, I just, I really want this because this is so great for me. But what Paul wants us to understand is, you know, death is not something we should fear. It's something we should actually look forward to. And you don't see most people have that concept of death of like, oh, I'm looking forward to that. It's usually, oh, I'm so afraid of it. But as believers in Jesus, we don't have to be fearful of death. We actually recognize death for us is a blessing. Death for us brings greater things than what we have in this life presently. And the first thing that Paul wants us to realize is we get this wonderful new body. And I'm sure all of us, you know, especially in January, you know, we start to, you know, reflect upon our body. We'd make these New Year's resolutions, which often, you know, you think about, I wish I looked younger. I wish I had a, a younger body, a more healthy body, a more fit body. You know, we have this idea of, of we want to change, you know, the body that we have right now. But you know what? You're going to get that. You're going to get that when you die. You're going to get that when you go to be with the Lord. You know, when I was in high school, I had a friend who had a, quite a wealthy father. And, you know, when he turned 16, he knew he was going to get his driver's license. And he thought, you know what, my dad's going to give me one of his many BMWs because he had a full collection of them in his garage. And so finally he turned 16, he gets his license, and his dad says, you know, I got a birthday gift for you, and takes him out into the garage, and this guy's thinking, oh, this is so great. And there's this car covered in a sheet, and he's just wondering, which BMW is it? And he pulls off the sheet to find this old, beat-up Ford, and his dad tells him, son, if you take care of this car, if you don't get in a wreck, if you treat it right, when this car stops running, then I'm going to give you a choice of any of my vehicles that you want. And so every time this guy drove his car, he wanted it to die because he recognizes, man, when this car stops working, I'm going to get a BMW. And so if you'd hear something in the engine or something going on, he wasn't all upset like we would be. He's like, yes, please stop working because the upgrade is coming. And our senior year of high school, this Ford finally stops working. You know, and if I had a car in high school, I would have been depressed that my car wasn't working. But, you know, most people would have been. But he was excited because he realized, man, now I get to get rid of this junker and I'm going to get this wonderful new BMW. And so in the same way, you and I need to realize that our age beat up body, yeah, it's going to die. And when it does, we get to trade it in for something far better than what we have now. And so that should be something that we look forward to, not something that we worry about and fear over. An Amish boy and his father were visiting a mall and they were amazed by a lot of things that they had seen because they lived in a culture where there was no technology. And all of a sudden they come and the thing that drew them the most were these two shiny silver walls that could move apart and together again. And the boy asked, you know, what is this father? And the father, never having seen an elevator before, said, I have no idea, son. And so as they watched this elderly woman in a wheelchair comes and these doors separate and there's this little room and she wheels herself in the little room and the doors close again and all of a sudden these lights light up over the door and you know numbers start to go up and then the reverse orders number come down and these doors open and this beautiful 24 year old woman walks out and the father says to his son 
go get your mother. <laughs> the father believed that the elevator could give you a new body. Obviously, he was mistaken, but you and I will get a new body if you believe in Jesus Christ. You're going to get a wonderful, glorified body. And that should bring us comfort. But not only should it bring us comfort, we also, it's not going to comfort you if you don't have confidence. You know, a lot of people don't have confidence in what the Word of God says. If you don't have confidence that this is coming, that what God says is true about the future, then it's not going to bring you comfort. And so Paul now is going to go on to share with us why we can be confident that the promise of a new glorified body awaits us when we die. Verses 5 through 8. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord." God knew that you and I needed to be confident in this very important reality of the new body that we're going to receive, about the future hope that we have of heaven. And so one of the ways that he brought that confidence to us is he gave us the Holy Spirit. And notice Paul says, as a guarantee. The Greek word here translated guarantee means a pledge or down payment that required future payments, but gives the one receiving the down payment a guarantee, which was a legal claims to the goods in question. Paul's using a, a normal Greek practice here uh, to describe this wonderful truth about the Holy Spirit. If you wanted to buy something but didn't have all the money to pay for it right then, you could enter into a legal agreement and you just started with the down payment, which was a guarantee that you would pay the rest of it off. And if you put that down payment, that guarantee, then you would receive everything. It was a promise that all of that was going to come to you. And so what he's saying is the Holy Spirit, that's like God saying, here's the down payment of everything that's coming. It's the guarantee that the new glorified body, heaven, all these things that I promise you, they are going to come to you. You can be confident that you're going to receive those things. In Ephesians chapter 1, we see the same reality about the Holy Spirit, verses 13 and 14. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So Ephesians, 2 Corinthians, they both reveal this, this wonderful truth. The Holy Spirit has a lot of wonderful things that it does for us. But one thing it is, is a guarantee of what God has. A guarantee of this inheritance that's coming to us in the future when we die and go to be with the Lord. Now, there are two other things that Paul wants us to be confident in. You need to be confident in the fact that you're going to get this wonderful, glorified body. Know that it's going to be great. But there's something else that we should be confident in as well. Notice what he says in verses 6 through 8. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Paul wants us to be confident in two things here. The first thing he says, I want you to be confident 
that the fact that while we're in this body, this earthly body here on this earth, we are absent from the Lord. Now, when he uses this term absent, he's speaking of we're not with God in heaven. We can't see him face to face. And that's why he says, um, because we are walked by faith and, and not by sight. We don't get to see God face to face while we're here on this earth. That's not going to happen until we reach heaven and get that wonderful, intimate experience with the Lord, get to see him, be with him. We long for that. But here in this earth, we're absent from that. We're removed from that. In this body, it wasn't designed to be in heaven. It wasn't designed to live for eternity. And so Paul is kind of sharing this in a negative light of, hey, you know what? Understand that this body keeps us from being able to be in heaven with God face to face for all eternity. That's why we need to get that new glorified body. Uh, so that's one thing he wants us to know. But he goes on to say there's something else that you and I need to be confident in and understand in verse 8. He says, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. While we are alive here in these earthly bodies, we're absent from God in heaven, but Paul shares with us, when we die and we're absent from this body, we go and now are present with the Lord in heaven. You know, this verse brings up something that's so important for us and deals with a question that many people have concerning Christians. What happens? Where does a believer go when they die? And Paul makes very clear that when a believer dies, immediately they go to be in the presence of the Lord in heaven. You know, heaven is precious to us for many reasons. You know, we want to see loved ones that have passed away before us, and we long to be reunited with them. We want to see and talk with the great men and women of God that we have read about in our Bibles. We want to see the streets of gold. We want to see the, the pearly gates. We want to see the angels who surround the throne. But really, none of those things make heaven heaven. That They're all great things. But the thing that makes heaven heaven is the presence of Jesus Christ. To have that intimate face-to-face -face presence that we are lacking here on this earth that we are going to receive when we get to go to heaven. Now, there are two false doctrines about what happens to believers when they die that here verse 8 kind of reveals that they are false. The first doctrine that is false um, is referred to as soul sleep. Uh, it teaches that believers who die are held in some kind of suspended animation until the resurrection uh, occurs. But Paul makes very clear, when you die, you're not held in some suspended animation. You're immediately in the presence of the Lord. The second false doctrine about what happens to believers when they die is referred to as purgatory. Basically, purgatory is teaching that when you die, you kind of have to be cleaned up. You got to go through a certain amount of suffering and then be worthy of now moving on to heaven, which we don't see biblically. When you die, you're not held in purgatory. You're immediately in the presence of the Lord in heaven. The reality for those of us who are Christians is the fact that death isn't the end. You know, that's what people think. You know, a word that often is associated with death is finality or the end. But for us, death isn't the end. It's the start. The start of something so much more glorious, so much better. The start of something actually that will never end. It's going to be wonderful to be in heaven. So take comfort in that. So Paul starts this chapter giving us this eternal perspective on death. 
If we understand what we're receiving, this new glorified body, the fact that we'll be face to face in the presence of Jesus Christ, those things should bring you comfort in death. It shouldn't be something that we fear, something that we're scared of, because the reality is it's going to be so much better for us. Well, now in the rest of this chapter, Paul's going to reveal that this truth concerning our eternity should also change the way in which we live our life in the present. The reality of our eternity and the reality of the eternity that those who do not place their faith in Jesus have should impact the way in which we live. You know, Paul's already built the case, we should take comfort in our eternity because it's going to be so great. But the other side of the coin is there is no comfort in the eternity of those who have rejected Jesus Christ because the Bible says very clearly they will spend eternity in hell. That's, there's no comfort to that. That's a horrible reality. And so Paul's helping us see, yeah, take comfort in your eternity because you have placed your faith in Jesus, but also recognize there are many who have not, and their eternity is going to be something that is so horrible, and so it should impact how we live our life in seeking to reach people with the truth of how their eternity can be changed through accepting Christ. Verse 9. Therefore we make it our aim whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul starts off saying, hey, our aim, our goal is to please the Lord, whether we're here on this earth or whether we're in heaven in glory, our heart's desire is to please God. And there was something that was driving him, something that he understood that motivated him to want to do this. And he shares that with us in verse 10, because we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul understood something very important for those of us who are Christians. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the judgment seat that Paul is referring to here is not the great white throne judgment spoken of in Revelation. There are two judgments. There is a judgment for believers in Christ, and there is a judgment for unbelievers in Christ. Unbelievers in Christ are going to stand before Jesus on the great white throne judgment, and they're going to be judged. There's going to be books of every sin that they've ever committed, and they're going to be judged for all eternity and sent to hell for what they've done. But we're going to have our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We are not going to be judged for our sin, but there is a judgment that comes to you and me. It's not a sin judgment because that's been dealt with. It's a judgment for what we did for Jesus in this life. It's going to be our works will be judged. You know, are we going to have any rewards in heaven based on how we lived here on this earth? And that's the, the judgment here that, that Paul is speaking of. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he kind of gives us a picture of what that's going to look like in verses 12 through 15. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire." These verses reveal that, hey, our wrong motives and our things that we do in this life that are just for us, 
There's no reward in heaven for that. It's something that's just going to be burnt up. And he gives this picture of fire burning. That's just going to be wood and hay and stubble. Those things, when it goes into the fire, boom, it's burnt up because it wasn't for Jesus. It was for you. It was for the wrong motives. But he says, you know what? There are works done in this life that are like gold and precious stones. And when they go into the fire, they endure. They last. The things that we do for Christ in this life with the right motive, we are going to have eternal rewards for that. And Paul recognizes that. So he's not dealing with the judgment between heaven and hell. He's dealing with believers receiving either a reward for the things they do for Christ or losing out on a reward because they weren't living for Christ. And so this is what motivated him. I, I want to do everything that's well-pleasing to God because I realize I'm going to stand before Jesus and I'm going to have to give an account for how I lived my life here on this earth. And I want to stand and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to be rewarded for living for Jesus in this life. Well, Paul knew that there's going to be a judgment for those that don't believe in Jesus as well. And it challenged him to do something. Notice what he says in verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God. And I also trust that we are well known in your conscience. Not only did Paul know about the future wonderful glory of heaven and the new glorified bodies, he also understood something else. The terror of the Lord. The terror of the Lord for those that don't believe in Jesus is that God's judgment will be upon them and that he will send them to hell. And that's something that is terrifying. And Paul recognized the reality that was going to happen for those who have rejected Jesus Christ. And so he says, you know what? I want them to be delivered from the terror, just like I have been delivered from the terror of the Lord by placing my faith in Jesus Christ. And so I seek to persuade everyone of the reality of what Jesus can do to deliver them from the terror of God's judgment. Paul realized there's comfort in death for those who believe in Jesus, but there is terror. Many people don't recognize it. Many people think hell is just going to be this big party place that they hang out with their friends. They don't realize the judgment. They don't realize the terror that they should have in rejecting God. But Paul understood it and he was moved to seek to persuade people to come to know Jesus Christ because that's the only way to escape this horrible terror. David Guzik, a great pastor and commentator, shares this about the importance of persuading people to come to Jesus Christ. This should be the heart of everyone who presents the gospel, whether it is in a pulpit or anywhere else. We intend to persuade men. We are not simply casting out ideas without caring how men respond to them. We should be like Paul, who passionately desired that men and women come to Jesus. We must intend in our hearts and words to persuade men. The knowledge of what death brings to this lost world should bring us to a place that while we're still here, we seek to persuade them. You know, not that we don't care. And I think too often it's just we present the gospel not really caring if they receive it or not. But Paul's saying, no, I, I seek to persuade. I am moved. I don't want to see anyone go to hell. And so I'm going to share with as many people as I can the good news of the gospel so that they can come to know Jesus and escape the terror that God will bring through his judgment. 
Paul goes on to say, we persuade men, but we are well known to God. And I also trust we are well known in your conscience. Paul worked hard to persuade men, but he knew he didn't have to persuade God. God was, he was well known to God. God knew Paul and had a relationship with Paul. But Paul also wished he did not need to persuade the Corinthian Christians. He wished that his ministry was something that um, they were, was well known in their conscience. And he goes on in verse 12 and 13 to say, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. Paul doesn't want to have to persuade the Corinthians again. He wants them to be persuading other people. But he also shares with them that, you know what, many people thought Paul was beside himself. Actually, more accurately translated, crazy. Why is he crazy? Because he's so willing to go through all this suffering for the gospel. He's willing to go through all this stuff that many people looked at his life and think, you're crazy to do this. And Paul says, well, if I'm crazy, it's only because I'm crazy for the Lord. I'm doing this for God. Actually, he goes on in verse um, 14 and 15 to give his ultimate motivation. Why would a guy like Paul be willing to suffer so much, be willing to go through so much for the sake of reaching people with the gospel? What motivated him? He shares with us in verse 14 and 15 what that is. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus. That if one died for all, then all died. And if he died for all, then those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Paul shares, for the love of Christ compels us. The thing that motivated Paul to suffer for Jesus, the thing that motivated Paul to continue to share the gospel with those who were lost, was the love of Jesus Christ compelled him. You see, Paul recognized Jesus loved me so much that he gave his life for me on the cross, and I want to respond to that love by giving my life to him, by serving him, by being willing to suffer for him, by sharing the good news of him to others. The love of Christ Christ compelled Paul, and that should be the thing that compels you and I. That should be the ultimate motivation that we have of why we're willing to share the gospel, why we're willing to suffer because of it. It should be the fact that God's love for us compels us to seek to do these things for him. And I think if it doesn't compel us, then maybe we don't really get how much God has done. Maybe we don't really grasp how deep his love is for us because the reality of what he has done should impact us, not just to be appreciative, but also to be willing to live for the one who gave his life for us. Charles Spurgeon says this about the love of Christ compelling us. The apostles labored much, but all their labor sprang from the impulse of the love of Jesus Christ. Just as Jacob toiled for Rachel solely out of love to her, so do true saints serve the Lord Jesus under the omnipotent constraint of love. You know, I like the fact that he brings in Jacob and Rachel and, oh, Jacob is willing to serve for seven years because he loved Rachel so much. You know, we often say, Lord, I love you but I'm not really willing to live for you. Well, it shows you don't really love him. True love is to say, Lord, I do love you, and I want to demonstrate it by the way in which I'm willing to live for you. That should be what motivates us. Verse 16. 
Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Part of living for Jesus is no longer regarding people or Jesus according to the flesh. No longer seeing people or Jesus the way we used to before we came to know Jesus. There should be a change in how we see people and a change in how we see God because of God's love for us. It should translate into love for others and love for Him. There's a change that happens and should happen when we come to know Christ. And because Paul realizes, hey, I want you to know it's a huge change. Know what he says. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. You know, when you and I accept Christ, we're not just forgiven, we're changed. Our old life, the way we used to live, the, the sins we used to do, all that stuff now is changed. Who we were is changed. We are now something new. We are a new creation, and we should be living like we are a new creation. The sad reality for many Christians is they are a new creation living like what they used to be. Paul say, no, recognize what Christ has done for you. Recognize what he's done to change you. And now let's live like that. Charles Spurgeon says this about being a new creation. I know no language. I believe there is none that can express a greater or more thorough or more radical renewal than that which is expressed in the term a new creation. You know, this is just such a wonderful reality of what God has done for you and I. And this world is so desperate to see that truth in us that they see, wow, what a change. So many people are drawn to Jesus when they look at what you used to be versus what you now are. And they see, what's changed you? Why don't you live like you used to? Why don't you act like you used to? What is transferred in your life where you are now this person And you have the great opportunity to share with them what Jesus has done for you to change your life and to make you a new creation who is so different from what you used to be. But when you just live like you used to live, that's no example at all to the world. They're not drawn to that. They don't wonder anything. They say, well, if that's all that Jesus does for people, then you can have him. The reality is the reaction that we should have to being a new creation is to live for God. Verse 18 Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation." Notice Paul starts off by saying all things are of God. This work of a new creation, all that we get to have, this eternal destiny, it's all a work of God. It's not something that we have to earn. It's not something that we have to achieve. It's something that God has done. It's the work that He has done on our behalf, and we just place our trust in His work, not trusting in our own. God has reconciled Himself to us through Jesus. It's the work of Jesus on the cross. That is how we've been reconciled. This word reconcile means to change from enmity to friendship. You see, the reality is the Bible makes very clear we used to be God's enemy. 
Before we accepted what Christ had done for us, we were God's enemy, and he wants to take us from enemy to friend to actually child. He adopts us into his family, and there's this reality of that's what he does. I'm going to reconcile us. You've done all the sin. You've divided us, but yet I'm going to do all the work to bring us back into a relationship. I'm going to sacrifice my son for your sin so that we can be reconciled together. And that's why Jesus paid our sin on the cross. He took our sin so that reconciliation could happen. He rose from the dead to conquer sin and death so that reconciliation could happen. Once we accept Jesus and receive that reconciliation Notice Paul says we're given the wonderful ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. You know, once you have been reconciled to God, God says, now I want you to go and share with everybody you know how this happened. Tell them how they can be reconciled to God. You know, so often as Christians, we get reconciled to God. We understand what Jesus has done. We place our trust in him. We're so excited that we're forgiven of our sin, and we just keep it to ourselves. God's saying, no, you have the ministry of reconciliation. Now that you understand what I've done for you, go out and share it with others. Let them know how they can be reconciled as well. As Paul recognized, the terror of the Lord is on them. They are going to hell if they don't choose to accept Christ. And so help them see how they can be reconciled and receive Jesus Christ. This is such an important responsibility that we have. And Paul reveals what we actually are in doing this. Verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul says, you know what? You guys are ambassadors. You are an ambassador for Jesus Christ. You know, an ambassador is someone who is an official representative of their government to a foreign place. And so as you're in this foreign country, you represent your country, your government to them. Some people are good ambassadors. Some people are bad ambassadors. But the reality is we are called to be ambassadors for Jesus in this world. This world's not our home. This world has rejected Christ for the most part. And we're supposed to be those who represent him, who show the world who he is, what he's done for them, how much he loves them, that he wants a relationship with them. That is our role and responsibility as believers in Christ to be ambassadors for him while we're here on this earth. And Paul finishes this chapter with one of the most important verses in the Bible of how God made this reconciliation possible. Notice what he says in verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God the Father May Jesus the Son, who knew no sin because Jesus was sinless, to be sin for us. You know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is very careful with the words that he chooses right here. He does not say that Jesus was made to be a sinner because Jesus never was a sinner. But he did become sin for us. Now, even Jesus becoming sin was a righteous act of love, it was not an act of sin. Jesus was not a sinner even on the cross. On the cross, the Father treated Jesus as though he were a sinner because he poured his judgment upon all sin on Jesus Christ. But there was no sin within Jesus, the sin was outside of him. Charles Spurgeon says this about Jesus being made sin for us. 
Christ was not guilty and could not be made guilty, but he was treated as if he were guilty because he willed to stand in the place of the guilty. Yea, he was not only treated as a sinner, but he was treated as if he had been sin itself in the abstract. This is an amazing utterance. The sinless one was made to be sin. Why would Jesus be willing to do that? Why would the one who never sinned be willing to take all of our sin upon himself? Well, the end of verse 21 tells us the motivation for Jesus that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took our sin, but he gave us his righteousness. There was this wonderful exchange that took place at the cross. Here, give me your sin. I will take it and place it on myself, and I will give you my righteousness and place it on you. If you will just put your trust in me, this exchange can take place, and now God can see us as righteous because we have the righteousness of Christ on ourselves, and our sins have been dealt with because Jesus took them on himself when he died on the cross in our place. Matthew Poole, a great British theologian and commentator, I think sums up verse 21 very well. This is the whole truth of justification stated simply. Our sins were on Jesus and his righteousness is on us. As Christ was not made sin by any sin inherent in him, so neither are we made righteous by any righteousness inherent in us, but by the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. We get righteous... Because of Jesus' righteousness and accepting what he has done for us. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, as a man to this earth. And Jesus lived a sinless life. He did never committed one sin, but he was crucified for our sins. And three days later, he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. Jesus did this to take our sin and to give us his righteousness so that we could be forgiven of our sin. And so that we could have a relationship with God. But the Bible makes very clear the only way that we can receive that forgiveness of our sin, the only way that we can be seen as righteous by God, the only way we can have a relationship with God is if we place our trust in who Jesus is, that he is God, and what he has done, that he died on the cross for your sin and for mine, and that he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. That is the message that this world so desperately needs to hear because... Paul recognized, and we should recognize, if they do not accept Jesus in this life, they're not going to face Jesus like we will, where we go to be with him for all eternity in heaven. They're going to face the terror of the Lord as they stand before the great judge who judges every sin that they've ever done. So as believers, we need to have an eternal perspective when it comes to death. When we die... It's not something to fear. We get great new glorified bodies. We get to be in the presence of Jesus in heaven where there's no more tears or sadness or suffering. And it's something that is an eternal blessing for you and I. So the reality is death is not the end. It's just the start of something so much better. So take comfort in that truth. But we also need to see that for those who are not Christians, death is the end of their opportunity to accept Christ. It's only in this life are we given the opportunity to make a decision to trust in Jesus. And if you reject that in this life, then for all eternity, you will have to suffer the consequences of your sin. We are ambassadors for Christ. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. The love of Christ should compel us to reach this world. And we should recognize they're in desperate need. 
So let's share with them the good news of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. Your word tells us we only love you because you first loved us. You were the one who reached down to us. You were the one who sacrificed yourself for us. You were the one who has made reconciliation possible. You did all the work. You just ask us to put our trust in the work that you've done. Lord, we're so grateful for the promise of what's coming. Lord, we know our sins are forgiven. And we know that when we die, oh, it's going to be so glorious. These old beat up bodies we get to trade in, Lord. But more importantly, we get to be with you face to face for all eternity. We are so grateful that you love us enough. That you willingly sacrificed yourself. That you took our sin upon yourself. If you're here this morning and you have never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin, you've never believed that he is God, that he died on the cross for your sin, that he rose from the dead, and this morning you want to get right with Jesus, you want him to forgive you of your sins, you want to know that when you die, you can be confident that you're going to heaven. As everyone's heads are bowed, eyes are closed, I just want to give you an opportunity right now to make a decision to believe in Jesus and to be forgiven of your sins. And if you've never done that and you want to do that this morning, I'm just going to ask you to go ahead and raise your hand because I want to pray for you today. 